I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. What happens at each school committee meeting has big implications for our students and our city, and this podcast shines a light on the decisions our leaders are making. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, we saw a big difference in this meeting last night. It was super interesting to sort of see the change in questions and tenor of the school committee members. Does feel like there are some new sheriffs in town, so to speak. So Ross, school committee started off for the second meeting in a row, welcoming a new member, Brandon Cardet Hernandez. Mr. Cardet Hernandez is the executive director of the Ivy School, which is in Brookline, and formerly worked in the New York City public schools as a key advisor to the chancellor and the mayor. Yes, Jill. I mean, I have to say that Mr. Cardet Hernandez asked some great, insightful questions last night during his first meeting. Uh, We now have a full school committee for the first time in a while, and Mayor Wu deserves acknowledgement for appointing really qualified, diverse members who ask very thoughtful questions and who seem highly engaged and committed to ensuring the best outcomes for students. Yeah, absolutely. So the superintendent's report was the first report of the evening, and it began with the recognition of this year's educators of the year. This has been an incredibly tough year, Ross, for all educators, and it's great to recognize those that have gone above and beyond. Yes, congratulations to everyone honored last night, and it does seem like uh, pretty much every one of our teachers and school support personnel should be educators of the year, uh, given what they've uh, gone through over the last you know, two years. So congratulations to everyone honored last night and actually to every educator in all of our schools. Um, The superintendent then discussed declining COVID rates in schools and gave an update on options for COVID-19 testing. The state, Jill, has offered BPS as well as hundreds of districts the opportunity to sign up for home antigen tests in addition to the pool testing and the test and stay programs. We've seen about, I think, about 400 schools and districts have signed up for this program. And last night, the superintendent said that BPS is still considering whether to offer this as an additional option for our students and families. That's right. And then the superintendent concluded her presentation last night by previewing the major report of the evening, which was high school redesign. We'll discuss this later, but it's important to note that there were several interesting and direct questions from school committee members at this point in the meeting. One of the comments made by the superintendent is that this redesign process will prioritize early college, advanced placement, and international baccalaureate, as well as career pathways, which led to this question from new school committee member, Brandon Cardet Hernandez. When can a family uh, in Boston expect to see that sort of access to that rigorous coursework in all of their, in any school that they go to, in any high school that they go to? That's my first question, sort of what's the the sort of implementation there and what is success for you? Like what is the right amount of access, right? Like what would be, is it four, is it six, is it 10? Like what does it really look like for us and what should a family expect as a baseline for what the courses that their student could be offered if attending a, a Boston public school? This is a great question. We often mention in this podcast the importance of SMART goals, specific, measurable, achievable. We've talked about those at length uh, around the superintendent's evaluation and her setting her, her goals for the district. It was great to hear a new committee member right out of the gate pushing the district in that direction by asking for clear metrics and expectations for BPS families. Here's how the superintendent responded. Success to me means, you know, students have more opportunity to take advanced uh, coursework. And that's where you get the rigor. 
that would be, you know, at least two classes before leaving high school is really a goal that I personally have and I think would be good and beneficial for our students. So the superintendent is saying every student should take at least two advanced classes before leaving high school. And, and that is her goal. It would be important to understand where we are now to set a baseline for this goal, as Mr. Cardet Hernandez pointed out. We currently have about a third of our graduates meeting mass core requirements. It'll be interesting to hear how we get from where we are currently, which we don't know, um, to where we need to be in the future. That's right. And Russ, then we heard another question on this topic from student representative Zyra Mercer. Here's what she said. But these new pathways and our classes, are they taking away from pre-existing classes in order to make room or is it just room that's already there that's being filled? With, with the mass core, you mean? Not with the mass core, like you're partnering up with other schools. Um, like um, you talked about Brighton High School, how they're going to have the STEM program. Oh, yeah. So is that taking away from pre-existing classes or pathways or is it just filling in like spaces already there? Ross, this is a great question. If you're adding all of these other courses to meet mass core requirements, then what are they replacing? Or are they just adding courses? And if that's the case, will there be enough students in each class to keep all of these offerings? How did the superintendent respond to this? Right, and Jill, th this question about student, we, we've seen a decrease in student enrollment. And what the superintendent is saying is we're gonna increase a bunch of opportunities at our high schools. And Ms. Mercer's kind of saying, how are you going to sustain that? Like, if we don't have enough right. kids, like, is it going to replace classes? Or are you just going to add a bunch more classes and then have very few students in each class? Like, how is this going to happen? Essentially, the superintendent answered that the decisions will be made on a case-by-case -case basis uh, by each school. Uh, it may be the case that these courses will replace current offerings, uh, it, but it'll be up to each school to determine what is replaced or added on. That's right. So then we heard a question from committee member Lorena LaPera about what type of community engagement took place before unveiling a plan to remove the 7th and 8th grades from the Trotter and King schools. Here's Ms. LaPera. Um, I just want to get a point of clarification and also emphasize um, the point of member Polanco Garcia with the grade configuration that we're talking about regarding the Burke. I'm understanding that there has been a community process with the Burke there's been a community roundtable with the Burke um, and that that community is requesting and excited about their grade expansion. I feel like I understood that part, but I think the part that may be getting missed is with the King and the Trotter schools where we're talking about a grade configuration, but a grade um, shift where current students would not continue their seventh and eighth grade there, but then would transition into a new configuration of the secondary is, have we actively engaged with the students and the families from the King and the Trotter? And are they also asking for this grade configuration where we would be eliminating the seventh and eighth to add the younger grades? And here's how the superintendent responded. I have not spoken to the families directly myself. I did um, have the school leaders who said that they would be speaking with the families about this decision. And so they are going to be speaking with the families about this decision. We sent a letter to them as well about this decision and the grade configuration. Oh, Jill. Oh, all right. This is a little bit concerning here. Um, you know, in this, it, 
we'll talk about this more later in the high school redesign presentation, but in that presentation, sort of embedded in it, is a note that essentially the Trotter and King schools next year, their seventh and eighth grade will be eliminated and all the students will be sent to the Burke pathway seven to 12. Uh, And it's clear here that nobody engaged the families at the Trotter and the King. Sounds like it was a major surprise for anyone who was in sixth grade or seventh grade this year that they won't be returning to their schools next year. The idea that this was, this was happening at this time frame um, and the engagement process just didn't happen. And we heard from the superintendent that she made the decision uh, and then she asked the, the principals to inform the families and she even wrote a letter telling them of the decision. But clearly there was no engagement of, of these school communities. And we've also heard, you know, really countering ideas here, Jill, between these sort of guaranteed pathways or not guaranteed pathways. But you have to really engage families. If they don't want to go to the Burke, all you're doing is adding a transition for those families. Essentially, they have to leave the Trotter now, if you're in sixth grade, go to the Burke in seventh grade, potentially, and then maybe go to a high school that starts in ninth grade that they want to go to, right? And so this actually could potentially add transitions rather than eliminate transitions that the superintendent is saying she's doing. Right. It could be very disruptive. So we'll get back to high school redesign later because that was the primary report of the evening. But what we saw here during the superintendent's report was a pretty good preview of what came later in the night. There was a presentation that did not have specific details around metrics or rationale or implementation. And then it was followed by great questions from school committee members pressing school leaders for the details. As the meeting progressed, we moved on to public comment, where we heard from people primarily on two topics, the broken promise of great expansion at the P.A. Shaw Elementary School and the impacts of the 10 bonus points in the exam school policy for students at the Joseph P. Manning K-5 through school. So, Ross, this 10 bonus points has now reared its ugly head again in these meetings. It's incredible. It's incredible. (laughs) Let's start with the Shaw, Jill, and then we'll get to the Manning. The Shaw Elementary reopened in 2014, as we discussed at the last school committee meeting. In 2016-17, it was a K-0 to grade 3 school. So that means it started with uh, students who were 3 years old and went through grade 3. And the school was supposed to keep adding a grade level each year until it reached 5th grade. Which it says on its website. Yeah, we'll link to the BPS website, which if you Google P.A. Shaw on BPS, it says it will expand to grade five. The following year, in 2018, the process of expansion was stopped without any explanation, forcing students to move to the Mildred Ave School, much larger school down the street, after third grade. A big source of frustration for parents and students at the Shaw who had been promised that they would be able to stay there through fifth grade. And the superintendent acknowledged this during her report last night. And in fact, she said that she hadn't been aware until recently that when she met with the Shaw parents and they informed her that a promise was made that they would go through fifth grade. Now, it's surprising that she didn't know about this, given that it's right on BPS's website. But that's what she said. So I have to say the Shaw students last night, um, some of them testified and You have to wonder why the district wouldn't do everything it can to support and grow a school that is so beloved by parents and students and and the teachers who work there. Here's what one of the students said during public comment, and they were all this great. Hi, my name is Scala. I am in the PSR Dugway. I think the PSR needs to spend it all. I think this because I've been here since I went to school. For example, this school is a great one, and who wants to leave? So I'm here to tell you that this is a pl- 
This is the place to learn. And there are amazing teachers and the subjects are amazing as well. You have the power to make our dreams come true. We also heard last night from several teachers at the Shaw, and here is one of those teachers. The Shaw student population is 63% Black, 28% Latinx, 90% high needs, and 85% low income. Five years ago, I was with the huge number of parents who stood in the school library in 2018 when the district announced they would not fulfill their promise to expand the Shaw to a fourth and fifth grade and instead cap us at third grade. Since this decision in 2018, our enrollment has declined by 30%. I wanna be very clear that this decline is not due to the quality of our school, but instead the result of district decisions to disinvest in our community. In fact, we have heard from other school leaders, from central office staff, and from our most important stakeholders, our families, that the Shaw is a high quality place to teach and learn. Dr. Caselius, you told us last night at our school site council meeting that the district has lost 7,000 students over the last five years. We at the Shaw know that our families often choose charters or private schools when they learn they can't continue at the Shaw past third grade. In our meeting with the chief financial officer of Boston Public Schools two weeks ago, we heard that our vision to expand the Shaw to a K-6 school might make us too appealing of a school that could cause too many families to choose our school. If our goal is for students and families to want to be in BPS and to choose BPS, isn't this a good problem to have? While we are pursuing our own research on the racial equity of the K-6 expansions in BPS, we know that no school in Mattapan has yet to be chosen for a K-6 expansion. Mattapan students and families deserve a variety of school choices and a preservation of schools that families are excited to send their kids to. Yeah, this was a great comment, Jill. Uh, um, you know, she's saying that the decline in enrollment is because the district broke its promise to continue expanding the school and not the other way around. I mean, we got to be concerned here, Jill, like the district is making decisions about the future of schools. Parents are enrolling in schools expecting that their child can stay through a certain grade level. And then the district changing their mind and sort of ripping the carpet out from under their families and the students, it causes a lot of distrust and it's really concerning. And so, look, Jill, here's what I would say about this. There were so many incredible students last night who spoke at the school committee from the, from the PA Shaw and really amazing staff members. Any school community who has those students and those teachers in it should expand. I mean, let's expand them to 12th grade. I mean, it, it is just, a, they're, they're, they're amazing. And that's what we want in our school system. So why wouldn't we support these amazing educators and amazing students? Completely agree with you. So the other big topic during public comment last night was the new exam school policy. As a reminder, last year, the school committee approved a new exam school policy that awards 10 bonus points to all students in a school with 40% or more students who are economically disadvantaged. The Manning is one of the few schools in the district not getting these points, and we heard from this community last night. Jill, this is really interesting, and the Manning is a very interesting case because the school essentially is one of two schools who serves students with emotional impairment in an inclusive setting, okay? So if your student has an emotional impairment, they may be assigned to the Manning in an inclusive setting. And really, there's very limited choices that families can make if their child is identified as a student with an emotional impairment. This issue was raised by several parents last night. Here is one of them. My family believes in the full inclusion model. Unthoughtfulness, an additional 10 point to all but seven Boston public school discrimination 
um, discriminate against students who are on an IEP for emotional impairment and who benefits from full inclusion setting. The seats for full inclusion services for EL are extremely limited. Only two of Boston Public Elementary Schools provide a full inclusion option for students with EL. Those are the J.P. Manning School and the Mary Lyon. So Jill, as she's saying, there are very limited seats and only two schools for students on IEPs for emotional impairment in an inclusive setting. I really don't know, you know how the district will rectify this given that this school does not receive the 10 bonus points in the exam school policy. Either the district needs to revisit the policy as it relates to students in specialized programs, or it must expand the options for students with disabilities across multiple schools. Um, but this, this is a real issue. Right. So this is a very interesting point that we heard over and over again last night. Here's another parent who raised a similar issue, who ended her testimony with a refrain that was repeated by nearly every parent who testified on this issue. My son was assigned to the Manning by BPS, and this is now being used against him. At the Manning, there are kids who have been kicked out of other BPS schools, only to find a fit at the Manning. And now they're being penalized for doing well at a great school. I urge you to reconsider the 10-point penalty. The goal is noble, but the execution is faulty. Why was the Manning left out of simulations? Why was it added onto the list after the initial announcement? It was mentioned in today's superintendent report that you are aware of possible issues relating to students with disabilities and equity. If you are aware of disparate impact, your absolute duty is to address it now, not next year. There's a really lovely family down the street two blocks from us. They're a Yale-educated banker and a Harvard-educated lawyer. Their two kids will get the 10 points. That Harvard-educated lawyer is Mayor Michelle Wu. This last statement, Ross, was repeated by Manning commenters all night long. The mayor's kids get 10 points, and so my kids should too. The point really that they were trying to make by referencing the mayor was to say, how are you making these decisions. It doesn't seem quite fair. It doesn't really seem equitable. And it'll be interesting to see if this newly raised issue around equity for students with special emotional needs has any impact on the exam school policy. The meeting continued with approval of grants and then a discussion of the revised student code of conduct. Ross, what did we hear? Well, Jill, this, the code of conduct has been revisited, I think, you know, over the past couple of years, a number of times by the superintendent and her team. And there's been a large amount of community engagement uh, with BSAC and other community groups about the code of conduct. And now it was finally up for a vote last night. And I think overall, the view of this code of conduct is that it's positive, it's progressive. We heard from student rep Zyra Mercer that she's grateful for the changes that are made. Uh, it's gotten rid of sort of this zero tolerance policies. It is student centered. And essentially, I think many school committee members, actually all of them, are very supportive of this very you know, progressive code of conduct that the superintendent and her team have created. The only question that was raised was from Brandon Cardet Hernandez around setting clear metrics for when they'll revisit this code of conduct. Will it be you know, every two years? How do we know when we're going to see it again and make any revisions to it? And what metrics will be used to understand if the policy works or doesn't work? While you know, the, the superintendent and her team didn't really have a clear answer for that, it was a good question, but the superintendent and her team should be lauded for creating a really positive and progressive student code of conduct policy. Exactly. And also, so just to close the loop on that, that policy was approved last night unanimously 
by all committee members. So finally, the meeting concluded with a report regarding a plan for high school redesign. Ross, we've seen and heard much of this before. Last night was presented by different school leaders. There wasn't much new in this presentation, was there? Oh, Jill, you know, I, I always get my hopes up on this. You know, when we're, we hear like a, here's a high school, here's what we're going to do with a high school strategy. And, you know, we get excited about hearing it. And then um, I got to say, really let down on this uh, presentation. If you would allow me, Jill, I'm going to go through some of the key points of the presentation and some of the highlights and we can, and we can discuss it. Uh, as you noted, this was the fifth time, I think at least the fifth time, we've heard a report on high schools over the last couple of years. Presenters have changed, you know, kind of each time. There was a video created last night, but you know what? The concerns, despite the video and the new presenter, still remain. There's really a lack of a plan for our high schools. So let me start with, with this, Jill. So the, the, the district said we're going to have a quality guarantee that every student is going to have, you know, a certain amount of things that are going to happen in a high school. Really, really what the quality guarantee should be is that all of our students will be prepared for college and career. And we should have clear data on how many of our students are prepared and entering into college or entering into career as a good baseline. And then we should have a measure every year for increasing that number. Last night, no data, no understanding of how our students are prepared for college or career, how many are entering college, how many are entering career um, or both, and um, no goals, no data, period. Um, then the, the district went on. This is Dr. Drew Eccleson was the presenter. He's the chief academic officer. He talked about inclusive practices and basically said our goal is to increase inclusive practices and highlighting that there's literally about 300 students in our high schools that have opportunities to be included with their general education peers. Um, again, these are about 300 students with a disability who are able to be in an inclusive setting with their general education peers. For all we know, Jill, this may just be represent one school. We have no idea. They didn't talk about inclusive practices across multiple schools. They set a goal next year to increase it by dozens of students. The percentages are dismal. And we know that students with disabilities are highly concentrated in some of our schools. Sub-separate programs are highly concentrated in some schools. And there's zero plan for how to move students to more inclusive settings in every one of our high schools across Boston. No goals, no plan, zero. Then, Jill, we heard about increasing access to native language instruction and then essentially helping our students achieve a biliteracy certificate upon graduation. Again, zero data, Jill. No data. Like, not a number. No baseline, period. All we heard with the number in this one was that we had 15 educators who are piloting a bilingual education endorsement pathway program. 15 educators. What is the data? Like, how many students are currently getting native language instruction? How many students are currently have access to these teachers? And what is our goal year by year? Zero data. Really disappointing on this. Um, and then Jill, you know, we heard over the last five years, BPS has expanded and launched 15 more career pathway programs. Okay. How are they doing? Are they entering career? What's the impact been? In what areas are these pathway programs leading our students to career? We have no idea how many students are being credentialed. We have no idea how many students are in these programs. Are they successful? Are they not? Nothing. No data. Then, Jill, we heard about prioritizing grade configurations, K to 6s, 712s, 912s, and creating these pathways. Well, as we discussed earlier, 
We've also heard that the district is just moving the king and the trotter into one of those pathways without engaging their school communities. What is the goal here? What, you know, we heard the superintendent last night say she wanted to have every school be a neighborhood-based school. Well, we just heard the superintendent, I think last week at a meeting, say that she didn't want to have neighborhood schools and she didn't want to have pathways. And now the superintendent is saying she wants pathways and she wants neighborhood schools. Well, can we make up our mind and try to figure out what we're doing in the district? Because it is very confusing for our families. And then Jill, finally, I, I, I think what this presentation was about last night was intervention teams. I think the superintendent was excited last night to introduce the concept that she's going to have an intervention team in three of our high schools. So that last night, Dr. Eccleson said that there would be an intervention team placed at the Madison Park High School, the McKinley School, and Charlestown High School. And they said that this will be a four-month process. There'll be three members from the superintendent's team, three members from the Boston Teachers Union, and then a, uh, a seventh member appointed by both of the, uh, the BTU and the BPS, and that they would create a plan in four months about how to address the underperformance of these schools. Well, Jill, in no way did anybody define the problem at each of these three schools. Nobody said, here's what we're concerned about at Madison Park High School. Here's what this team will address. Here's the concern at Charlestown High or the McKinley schools. It was just announced that there would be an intervention team um, with really no clear plan. It, it just seemed like a very odd thing to talk about without saying, here's what we're trying to deal with in, in our school district. The last thing I'll say, Jill, maybe not the last thing, this plan, uh, the quote unquote plan, really lack of a plan, had nothing past 2023. We're in 2022 now. Next school year is 2023. All they said in their presentation was for 2023 and beyond is, I quote, as we look to the future of every high school delivering on our quality guarantee, we will shift our focus to facility upgrades, anywhere, anytime learning, and more early college and vocational opportunities. Jill, this is a statement. It's not a plan. We've heard this over and over and over again. When will bold change occur? When will the superintendent and her team take this seriously? Where is the data? Where is the accountability? Where is the metrics? So overall, this was a presentation on a bunch of things without specificity. It lacked metrics. It lacked strategy, accountability, a budget, a timeline. I can't tell you how concerned I am about this. I've heard Dr. Eccleson and the superintendent express their concern about the lack of detail in plans that have been presented to them in the past. In comparison to those plans, this presentation from Dr. Eccleson and the superintendent last night was like a high-level concept. It was extremely disappointing. Why do you think that is, given there's so much conversation uh, about exam schools and all of the other schools which educate the majority of our high school students and their underperformance, broadly speaking, with, with some shining stars, but, but small schools, so not addressing the needs of lots of students. Why aren't they digging deeper on this? Like, like, it just seemed like this is a rehash of all sorts of things that have been said before with no underlying action items. Why do you think this is where, are they stuck for some reason? I have, I have no idea. I have no idea if this is just political, that nobody's willing to sort of say, we're going to take this on and with all due diligence and, and take risks and try to, try to really meet the needs of our kids. I don't know if they're afraid of failure. I don't know if they don't have the team to do it. I don't know if they just don't care. I have no idea, Jill, but this is just, this is horrific for our city, 
for our students and for our families. Well, it will be interesting to see how the new school committee reacts to this presentation and what they ask for in follow-up to this, because it's, you know, we're looking at a majority of change in the school committee, very targeted, focused questions from them last night. So after the presentation, the one thing that we thought was worth resharing was the exchange from school committee member Lorena LaPera and the superintendent about the temporary spaces that were approved to accommodate the district as they execute changes in grade configuration. And we, and we thought this was interesting because it sort of gets to the larger question of where is the overall plan? So here, here's Lorena LaPera. So for example, like the base. We're moving K-5 to K-6. Because right. that will be our grade configuration, but we're not creating any new K-8 schools. Correct. But with that six, many of them are doing it with temporary spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is the timeline to think like, how long are people going to be in temporary spaces? I know you don't know these pieces, but I'm just trying to think through, if I were a parent, is this a... Uh, a, a one-year timeline to, to think about a more permanent uh, position for schools? Is this two years, three years out? Are we 10 years out? Like, I'm just trying to conceptualize what this means. So I anticipate that by fall, we should know where our schools are on the list, but construction projects take in a huge amount of time. Mm -hmm. So it could be multiple years for schools and it could be for some schools 10 to 15 years before they change. We have 125 schools. We literally would need somewhere around $4 billion in order to move our projects. And then there's the sheer logistics and operations of that amount of construction projects to get, you know, to get going where every school could be could be remodeled or renovated or an addition put on, and just the sheer capacity of the city to be able to manage those projects. Jill, Ms. LaPera is asking a very pointed question about how long students will be in temporary spaces. And the answer she gets is that it would, t- is that it would essentially, it's going to take the amount of time to renovate every school in the district, and we need $4 billion. Is there a plan? Yeah. I mean, this takes us right back to where we started. Without a long-term plan, a comprehensive master plan, We end up with patchwork, patchwork decisions, patchwork approach, patchwork presentations. This is so disheartening for our students, our families, and our community. Let's get to a plan. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Here are some of the questions that we think are worth asking. Dr. Drew Eccleson mentioned a new RFP last night during the high school redesign presentation on collecting and evaluating data. When will this RFP be posted? What is the long-term plan for BPS school buildings? School committee members continue to ask this question. The superintendent last year mentioned an RFP to create a campus master plan, which we have still not seen posted. Will there be a master campus planning process? A first draft of next year's budget will be presented at the next school committee meeting with the district entering with more money than ever. Where will the superintendent invest these resources? And of course, there are ways to engage and get involved. First and foremost, we encourage you to join your school parent council, your school site council, and or talk to your school leader and ensure that you understand the plan for the school and ensure that there's no change is going to be made next year for your school that are going to impact your child's education. 
Next, testify at the next school committee meeting and share your thoughts on how to address the issues facing your school. Of course, reach out to Mayor Wu and city councilors to discuss your priorities for your child and for your school. And lastly, sign up for our email list at shawfoundation.org to provide feedback on this podcast, receive updates to our work, and be notified when new podcast episodes are available. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.